Mabiso Musiya on SAFM. Okay, let's talk by, start by looking back at what happened at Euro 2020. We go all over to Milan now where we are joined by Davido Kinelato, who is the editor for La Gazzetta dello Sport. Davide, good evening from us in South Africa. Thank you very much for being able to speak to us tonight. Thank you guys for having me. Good evening to everyone. Thank you and congratulations on the win. I mean, how have the scenes been in Italy after winning Euro 2020? Well, as you can imagine, in a football crazy country, <laughs> the country went went crazy, you know. Uh, celebrations on the streets all night long. Uh, currently, the, the Italian team is being received by the president of the Italian Republic, uh, uh, together with Matteo Berrettini, our tennis player, who yesterday played in the Wimbledon finals, and he was the first tennis player ever to do that. But obviously, it's a big day of celebrations. Uh, Italy didn't reach the the final phase of the World Cup in 2018, and we were waiting for this uh, Euro 2020, like the big chance to finally, uh, you know, be back on the big football stage. And honestly, the, 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 the Italian team went beyond everybody's imagination. We knew we had talent, but, um, you know, winning it all in this way uh, against England in Wembley, he definitely had some more to this to this unbelievable success. And Italy hadn't won a European championship in fifty three years, so it's even bigger now. Yeah, that is that is really amazing. And you, you mentioned that Matteo Berrettini is there, um, also meeting the the, the the president or the prime minister. We've seen those pictures actually on social media. And there was a headline in the in um, in one of the papers yesterday saying Wimbledon, um, basically building up to the Wimbledon final as well as the Euro twenty twenty final. I'm interested to find out from you, Davide. What was your headline in the paper this morning? Uh it's like. Uh Champion of Euro- European champion, very very simple, with a big picture of the Italian team celebrating in on a pitch in Wembley. Obviously, you know historic win. Uh, this this front page is, you know, Gazzetta is uh, the historic uh, sporting newspaper here in Italy. We are 125th year old, so we have all the collections of uh, the front pages when we won the the World Cup in last time in 2006, but also in 82, 34, and 38. So I'm pretty sure that this front page will be soon up in, in this kind of whole thing of our, you know, best and most popular front pages. But yeah, you know, it, it was like uh, one of those one of those print editions you, you want to buy just <laughs> to collect it because it's big, you know. Super big. Definitely. And and you said you were not expecting much going into the tournament, especially because Italy failed to qualify for the 2018 World Cup. But it's been a remarkable turnaround uh, with Roberto Mancini. What what has he done right here, in your opinion, Davide? Well, I think, first of all, um, he, he brought the country back together to love the Italian team. After the 2018, after we failed to reach the World Cup in 2018, uh, the Italian team wasn't wasn't as popular as it used to be, and he kind of lacked enthusiasm from from the fans. But uh, when Mancini took over, obviously he was a big soccer, big football player in uh, in the 90s, and you know a name that also as a as a coach was successful with with Inter Milan especially. Uh, but you know he, he was able to uh, he was able to reconnect the fans with, with the team, and then you know the team started started to win and he qualified as well for, for the championship. And then obviously the pandemic hit hard here. Uh, so he kind of managed to 
uh, bring the fans back together to love uh, the, the, the the blue jersey, the, the azzurri, you know, the, the azzurri jersey. And he, he brought a lot of enthusiasm uh, with a young group, uh, a lot of, you know, upcoming stars like Gigi Zonaroma, the goalkeeper who won the, you know, the best player of the European Championship, but also the two big defenders in Bonucci and Chiellini, like two uh, legends here. Uh, but yeah, there, this, this team is basically a mix of veterans and upcoming stars, and many of them are not even you know starters in their in their club teams. But uh, some somehow it, it, it kind of put the group together and started to do, get more and more attention from fans. And you know, European Championship was a, was the perfect uh, occasion to you know bring the country back together and unify all the fans. Uh, watching the games and rooting for the Azzurri to win, and it was it was like uh, a long month here. Uh, you know, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of uh, people in the streets watching games. Uh, once the COVID restrictions were lifted, uh, it, it was kind of a sort of feeling back to normal to pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, enthusiasm for for football and for uh, uh, a sport competition, like leaving it all together as fans and celebrating big after this big, big victory. Yes, and they did look like a united group. And we saw they've got players, even from Sassuolo. He was calling up players from Torino, um, which was quite interesting because we usually um, expect these players from the so-called big clubs in Italy to make up part of most of the national team. But it was quite interesting with how diverse he's picked from the Serie A. What about his management stuff? Because what we noticed here in South Africa is that there are some people that we know, former players like Viali, uh, Daniel De Rossi as part of that um, technical staff of Mancini. How important was that support for him? I think it was it was huge, you know. He Mancini and Viali were, you know, the two best players from the Sampdoria team who uh in the eighties and the nineties were like uh the, the darling for everyone here. It, it was you know, not a big club, not a historic big club, but they managed to won the championship in ninety one and play uh the the final game of the Champions League. It wasn't called Champions League back then, but you know <laughs> you know what I'm talking yeah. about in ninety two something yeah yeah and so you know there was a lot of love for them because of this Uh, another guy from that team Attilio Lombardo is in in his his staff Daniele De Rossi obviously a popular figure uh, one of the champions for the 2006 World Cup I think you know you have you have this uh, group that is really uh, winning over fans back again but also you have this staff with a lot of players from from the 90s and the early 2000s. And I guess it was the perfect storm to bring fans back together and to bring everyone to support this team no matter what. Obviously, we won and we won big. And, you know, uh, we're still unbeaten. We haven't lost a game in 35 uh, matches, which is probably uh, close to be an all-time record, definitely an all-time record for, for Italy. Uh, so, you know, you have winning, you have a bit of nostalgic uh, element, you have a group that, you know, is, is playing well and is uh, united. And, you know, it shows that when, when Spinazzola went down for with, with the injury, everyone was, you know, kind of uh, staying close to him and helping him out, cheering him up. So uh, definitely a great group and definitely a great group overall, including also the staff. Yes, and I think it's one, one, one and 
beaten match away now from equaling that record of the longest run unbeaten, which is incredible. And out of the tournament, Davide, we were calling them defensive, boring, boring Italy, but they actually played a more attractive brand of football. Were you expecting that? Uh, honestly, no. I mean, we knew it, w- it was different, but we knew it wasn't like in the past when Italy was all about defense and try, uh, you know, not to have opponent to score. Probably, you know, the perfect game would have been winning one, one nil. Yeah. But you, you know, uh, this tournament, everything was different, and Italy started to play well from the beginning. And the first two games, the first three games, actually, the group phase was. Probably, as you said, one of the most interesting style of football in the, in the whole competition. So that I think that also brings back a lot of fans, and uh, it was the perfect start. Uh, then we had some issues with Austria in, uh, in the first knockout stage of the game, but you know everyone was rooting for you know the the, the Azzurri, and by then everyone was hoping to get as far as the final game, but. Yeah, I think I think it surprised a lot of people the way the way this team played. And does it now raise expectations for the World Cup next year? Well, obviously, of course. <laughs> you know, when we went to the European Championship, we didn't have a lot of expectation because of what happened last time. But now we won the European Championship, so we expect to be, uh, you know, among contenders for for the the World Cup next year. Obviously, you had Brazil and Argentina. Uh, to the mix, and I'm pretty sure England will, you know, come back. France, uh, Spain, all all the big, you know, usual big teams. But you know, we need to be back among the football elite, and this is the perfect way to prove it. And this is a perfect way to build uh, for the World Cup next year. So yeah, definitely hoping to win. Okay, let's just play one voice note, and uh, before we wrap up, Davide. Evening, dear member Tulania from Milan. Congratulations to Italy. Even though hey, I didn't see it coming, but I only said they will be on the top four, but not winning it. But after the game of Spain, they showed that they want it because of the ball. They are one of the great teams to recover the ball quickly. And the team without the ball is dangerous because when they have it, they know what to do. Congratulations to Italy. They deserve it. Thanks. Thanks, Tulani. I think no doubt the best team won there at Euro 2020. And the other question we have from social media, Davide, is that um, do you expect Bonucci and Chiellini, who were solid at the back, to feature at the World Cup next year? For sure, for sure. Chiellini is definitely going to play another year. Bonucci is definitely, you know, keep playing. So I'm pretty sure they will be, you know, the two uh, columns together with uh, Donnarumma, the goalkeeper uh, of the of the team that we will feature next year in the World Cup. But yeah, if, if they are healthy, uh, they will be there. And he's a free agent, Donnarumma. Does that surprise you? Uh, I think he's going to Paris Saint-Germain. Uh, you know, it's a bit complicated because it's one of the, you know, big name of, uh, of the transfer market. But I'm pretty sure from the last thing I heard is that he's going to Paris Saint-Germain. So, okay. uh it's a bit surprising that he actually left AC Milan, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think you know, but it's it's putting together a you know a team of stars, and I I think in this tournament he show, he probably belonged to them uh, to you know to the the, the, the football elite. Obviously, it's it's tough for every AC Milan fan to you know see him go, but 
Again, it was inevitable, uh, and I, I think he will be uh, one of the best goalkeepers ever. He has the potential to be one, definitely. But he still has lots of time on his side there. Davide, thank you very much for speaking to us in South Africa. Congratulations once again, and you deserve to win Euro 2020 this time. Thank you very much for having me, and thanks a lot for the love you're sending Thank you, and like, sending us. and like you said, it's good to see Italy becoming a powerhouse again in world football. That's exactly what we want to see. Okay, we're gonna, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We're going to move right along and uh, go over to the UK now to get reaction there after that defeat to Italy. And we are joined on the line by Ed Ahrens, uh, always been kind enough to speak to us, the Guardian Deputy News Editor. Ed, a good evening from us in South Africa. Thanks again for your time. No worries. Good evening. How are you? We're fine, thanks. How are you, Ed? How's the mood 24 hours after that defeat in the final? Does it hurt? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of reflection going on this morning, but I think most people, I think most, you know, rational fans are being quite rational, really, and, and seeing that England have, have done very well in this tournament and they did really well to get to the final, albeit they came up just, just a bit short with our old nemesis on penalty shootout again. But, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of pride um, still in, in the players and and a sense of perhaps, you know, this is only the start of, uh, of what could be quite an exciting few years for this team. And what were the expectations ahead of the tournament from, from, from the fans, from the England fans? I think there was there was quite, there was a bit of quiet confidence, to be honest. Obviously, the home advantage was, was something that people, you know, thought we, we, we had to take advantage of. And that is one regret that we'll always have, I think, you know, obviously getting to a final doing so well to get to the final, but not taking that opportunity of winning at home. But I was just thinking earlier, um, France, you know, they were at home for the last Euros final. Mm. They lost to Portugal and then went on to win the World Cup. So perhaps this could be, you know, a spur to win the the most important prize in football, really, which is, is obviously the World Cup. So that, that's what I think England fans are, are trying to cling on to, really, after such a heartbreaking uh, experience. Yes, and, and what was more heartbreaking? Was it getting to the final, not winning it, leading and blowing the lead or losing on penalties, Ed? <laughs> it's a tough one. I think I think the one regret that I would have, and the, the, you know, it's a lot of uh, praise for Gareth Southgate for the way he's handled the team and the way he's progressed them. But I think there's a lot of frustration that, you know, having taken such an early lead, they didn't really build on it and they just kind of sat back. And it's mm. been there's been quite a few England matches where this has happened, you go back to 1996 Euros in the semi-final where England took the lead against Germany very early. And the same against Brazil in the 2002 World Cup when Michael Owen scored against Brazil. Uh, and they just tend to sit back. And, and also, actually, in the World Cup uh, semi-final uh, in 2018, they scored very early against Croatia. And there was a sort of sense of dread of what, you know, trying to hang on rather than trying to kill the game and go to the extra goal. And I think that, that maybe Gareth Southgate will learn from that experience and Perhaps be a little bit more bold next time because of the, you know, the amount of attacking players that England had on the bench. Yes, he's he's also come out to basically he's been criticised for the penalty takers, and he's come out to say that he takes responsibility. He chose the penalty takers, and we saw Jack Grealish tweeting today that he also wanted to kick, but the managers chose the kickers. Is that your understanding also? Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the thing that everyone's going to going to talk about afterwards. I think because the fact that Saka. You know, who I thought had an absolutely outstanding tournament and was often the person in, you know, in the England team that made things happen to certainly kick things off, gave him a bit of an injection of energy. It's so sad that he's the one that ended up being, you know, the one that missed the crucial penalty, as it turned out. He's only 19. And there was a lot more experienced players who perhaps could have taken one. But 
you know, they, they did an assessment before the tournament of how best to go about it. And they identified the players they thought could do it. But, you know, I was very surprised that, you know, Jordan Henderson, for example, I thought, you know, yeah. given he may not have the best technique or the best record, but he's, he's been there and done it, you know, with Liverpool and, and with England, you know, to an extent as well. So um, I was a bit surprised at that. But, you know, it's again, it's something for them to learn from. And clearly uh, the Italians know how to win a penalty shootout and know how to, you know, know how to close out a game. There were certain incidents in the match where, uh, you know, a few England fans got a bit hard done by but, you know, it was just the way that the Italian defence was superb throughout the tournament and uh, England just came up a bit short. Yes, I also heard him at the press conference today. He had to answer just a few questions about his future. Surely he stays on until the World Cup at least. Do you see any changes there or is he in? Does he, is there a bit of pressure there? No, I think I think he's pretty much said that he's going to stay until Qatar the next year. I hope, you know, obviously England have got quite a difficult group as well. They've got to still qualify, but... Um, assuming they got there, I think he would he would stay. But I think it's after that that he's sort of questioning whether he, you know, whether first of all whether people want him to stay, and you know also whether he wants to. Well, I think he's, he sounds pretty worn out from what I heard of today. Uh, you know, he's had a long few weeks, and obviously an extra year to prepare for this tournament. But it's an extra year of stress and worry and stuff like that. So he said he needs a bit of time off. But I think most England fans would want, you know, certainly want him to stay for the for the World Cup at least. Yes, you spoke earlier about how that this group has progressed over the years. I mean, what do you make of how, how, how this team has developed since he took over? Surely there are very encouraging signs here. There was a semi-final at the World Cup in Russia. Now there's a final at Euro. That's the right direction, isn't it, Ed? Yeah, absolutely. And he's, as he said, I think if he included the Nations League in this oh, as yeah. well. England have come, have come fourth, third and second in the last three tournaments. So the logical progression he's hoping, I think, is you know to win the next one. But yeah, it's it's very good because you know they had the second youngest squad at the at the tournament, um, and and the good thing is you know there's lots of younger players who can still come into the squad that weren't there. People like Mason Greenwood, I'm thinking of who who you know I think is going to be quite a big player for England in the future. So yeah, there's plenty to build on, and, and somebody like Jude Billingham as well. I think you know we'll see a lot more of him uh, in the future. I think there's a bit of regret not to see him come off the bench as well. Right, there's, there's one of the one of the players that could have made a difference perhaps. And, and England is producing these quality young players, um, um, Ed, who also play abroad, not only in England. And there seems to have been a revival of some sorts here. We saw the under-20s the under won the, the World Cup in, 20, in 2017 against their Venezuela, if I remember correctly, in that final. Um, yeah. What do you make? Did, did they take a leaf out of Germany's book when they did their own turnaround? Or is there, what do you make of this revival? What has been done in the development structures, or the, the youth structures of English football? It's really interesting, actually, yeah, because uh, I think the main the main credit should go to the uh, academy system and the fact that you know the Premier League has got so much money and they, they they put a lot of money towards the academies and they are producing excellent players because they have really good coaches, great facilities, and they have good scouting networks, and that is helping bring up the general standard of, of players in England and uh, the FA as well have done quite a few things to try and you know, encourage more creativity with footballers rather than, you know, just being, uh, just playing to a 4-4-2 more English style there. I think younger players are brought up brought up in a more sort of, you know, continental style of playing football and learn things about technique that perhaps they didn't before. And now England is producing, like you say, so many good players that it's kind of becoming the envy of, the, of Europe anyway. Uh, you know, German clubs are looking at young English players to bring them over to give them an opportunity. And, uh, you know, Jaden Sancho is the most famous example of that. 
Excellent. There's also Jude Bellingham, the crown jewel of uh, Birmingham there. Uh, but but sadly, this achievement of reaching the final eight has been overshadowed by those by those racist abuse levels that the players that missed the penalty. I mean, what do you make of what has happened and what's the reaction been that side? Well, I think it's just absolutely disgusting. And I think that's what everybody in the country really thinks of that because, you know, that's, that's been the really positive thing out of this. Uh, that there's been a generally quite a good vibe in in England since, you know, the team's been doing well and, you know, a very multicultural team and, and people are very proud of that. You know, we're, you know, we're very proud of our multicultural society and, uh, well, most of us are, I think. But then there's always a few, there's a few idiots who, who ruin it and, and not just the, you know, the, the racist abuse on social media, which is just awful, but there was also some, you know, I'm sure you saw the fans before the game, you know, smashing up parts of London and, yeah. Also going into the going into the ground without tickets and fighting and just really tarnishing the image of English people. And it's you know uh, just want people to know that they don't represent all of us. You know, it's not uh, it's quite quite sad uh, to see those kind of things. Definitely very disappointing. Thanks, Ed, for speaking to us. And uh, yeah, I hope you will heal. Time heals. Uh, but uh, well done on reaching the final. They were an exciting Thanks team to watch England. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. We'll be fine. Thank what, you. Sorry, Thank Ed, you. before you go, what was your headline today in The Guardian? I can't remember. <laughs> I, I just, uh, <laughs> oh, what was I the theme even, in the papers? I haven't even seen it, to be honest. I haven't, I, I, I dare, I haven't even looked at the papers yet. <laughs> but I'm sure it was something, you know, yeah. Hard break. Until next time. Until <laughs> next time. Okay. Thanks, yeah. Ed. Thanks for speaking to us. We appreciate it. Ed Ahrens is uh, the deputy news editor at The Guardian. They're speaking to us uh, all the way from the UK. And um, talking about what happened in the aftermath of England's defeat to to Italy, we saw those, um, if you're on social media, you would have seen how those players that missed penalties were racially abused. We saw that there was a mural of Ma- Marcus Rashford in Manchester that's also been vandalized now. And it's, it's really sad that it's overshadowed what has been a very good tournament under difficult circumstances. And it is something that we need to talk about. And we are now joined on the line um, by the former chair of the Legal Committee of the Commissions for Racial Equality and chairperson of the Wessex League, who joins us on the line now, um, Richard Pukis, just to talk about... OK, let's take a quick break. We'll go there after the break. Tabiso Musia on SAFM. Okay, we just had to take that quick break, but we stay in the UK now. And Robert Perkis uh, joins us on the line. As I mentioned, he is the former chair of the Legal Committee for the Commissions for Racial Equality and the chairperson of the Wessex League. Uh, Mr. Perkis, good evening, and thank you very much for being able to speak to us in South Africa this evening. Yes, good evening. Yes, don't need to be pleased to. Thank you. Just for our understanding, just as the former chair of the Legal Committee for the Commissions of Racial Equality, what did your role entail? Well, I, I had, I've had a number of roles. I was also the, the chairman of the European Parliament's uh, uh, race uh, monitoring body in Vienna for six years, um, in, in which guys I came to South Africa. I, I was oh. in South Africa for three years when I was uh, from 1961 to 64. So, um, and then I, as I say, I, I worked in America and... Uh, and six years as the European Parliament uh, chairperson on racial equality throughout the member states. Um, so uh, as the chairman of the legal committee, it was um, to enforce the, uh, the Race Relations Act and, uh, and where necessary um, uh, uh, to uh, enforce that by, uh, 
by taking people to court and issuing orders. So that was what we did there. Um, I also have been involved with the Football Association and Professional Footballers Association for the past 20 odd years in talking about race uh, issues and race equality and training people. So I think that as far as the the, the football side is mm. going, uh, we've got it right, um, and they're getting it right. We, mm. We've got the respect, we've got the in, inclusion, we've got the involvement of people, and we've got the clarity and understanding from from the manager all the way down. I think the reality is, though, that um, in, in the case of where we are, we really do have to uh, recognise that there's a lot in the rest of the country that have not yet caught up with that. Mm. And that includes the government. I mean, we, we had a government that um, when we the, the example came in of taking the knee so that uh, expressively people could show um, what um, they were fighting for and what uh, an anti-racist uh, activity. This is not just about using words. It's about actually showing people um, that uh, there's a collective understanding and respect. And then we get a government that comes out and starts challenging that. And people within the government, including the prime minister, uh, ridiculing um, that and saying it's a political gesture. Well, first of all, saying that indicates that they didn't have a clue uh, what it was all about in, in the wider sense. Uh, and that George Floyd and everything else, um, that, that resonates throughout the world that activity on, on any uh, people of, uh, of a colour or an ethnic minority within the situation. Um, and so I don't think, I, I don't see what, how people can be surprised that when we get the, the, uh, that taking of the knee ridicule by our top-ranking government officials, that we get racist abuse at the end of a tournament when we have three of our really young, talented black kids who um, just happen to be different from the other two uh, in, in colour terms because they uh, had the misfortune to either miss the penalty in one case or have two saved, um, we then get this uh, racial abuse coming out, particularly towards someone like Rashford, who was lauded as a hero for uh, helping to feed young kids. And he didn't ask what colour the kids were that he was feeding. Mm. He, he was taking that... Uh, in a much wider sense. And so it just shows you that there is still a huge degree of real racism just under the surface of some of the institutions within the British society. Well, it's quite ironic then that the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was one of the first to tweet saying this England team deserves to be lauded as heroes, not racially abused on social media. Those responsible for this appalling abuse should be ashamed of themselves. Is that good enough or should more be done? No, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. It's like a bully saying sorry after someone's been uh, exposed for what's happened. Um, he, if he had if he had taken the leadership role that uh, Southgate and many others did, uh, when we were taking the knee uh, and when, you know, leading up to this, uh, people were saying, look, we have to take a positive stance against racism. Where was he then? He wasn't out there uh, in, in the forefront of uh, supporting it. He was ridiculing it. He was saying, oh, this is a political gesture. It was, well, politics is about the way we live. And yes, 
that was, if it's in that context, it's a political gesture. He was trying to put it as something else. So now to come out afterwards and say, oh, hang on a minute, I better tweet that this is not acceptable. Uh, well, he has to look at his own behavior and that of some of his ministers as well. And I mean, what, what's it going to take then, Bob? Because we've got these groups, you've been involved heavily, we've got Kick It Out in the UK, but it seems like this problem is not going away anytime soon. Or does it go back to what you're saying, that government also needs to take the lead in these matters? Yeah, the government has to take the lead. And, and not only that, it, it has to, it, you know, there has to be an effective deterrent. And unfortunately, in our society, we will always have those people who don't want to uh, conform. We will always have those people, and, and I'll give you another silly example, but we all know what the speed limit is. But do yeah. we keep to it? Well, if we see that funny colored car with a blue light flashing, then we tend to. And if we, if we get caught, we get then uh, punished. There's a sanction put on us. At the moment, um, we have the, the, the speed limits, if you like, with what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, but we don't see effective enforcement um, that's then placed on it. We're now calling on, uh, they're saying the police will have to do something. Well, at the CRE, when I was the legal chair there, we were getting some 2,000 odd cases a year reported to us of racial abuse and, and uh, racial inequality. And we would take those up, you know, where there was a genuine side. We would take those forward and we would prosecute. We don't see so much of that nowadays. And that's where the FA, I have to say, are doing that. The FA now have some very strict sanctions, um, particularly anyone who is registered with the FA and have a, a, an FA number. Uh, and if they are caught with their, uh, any of the tweets or any of the social media uh, uh, statements that they've made, they will be dealt with by the FA. And, and I sit on one of those disciplinary committees that does that. And, um, but we, we're not seeing the same robust enforcement by the, the, the government. We're hearing words, but we need more than that. We need action. Yes. And, and does it still show the importance and does it show the importance of still taking the knee? Because, as you said, some have dismissed this stance. Of course, it's important. What you have to do is keep it into... Look, this is not something that we're doing just for five minutes. Racism, uh, as you know, certainly, I spent that time in South Africa. I then came back to South Africa many times, and I've, I've, I've been back now with, with my wife, who is black, and, and we've, we've felt comfortable with that which was uncomfortable. But it took a very long time to get that message across. And we still, that's what the taking of the knee is all about. It's mm. about getting a message across to people as to why are we doing that? Why do we have to do it? And what we don't want to take the knee, we want to stop the reason why we're taking the knee. That is the whole point. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there, Bob, just because of time. Yeah. But, but, but having been in South Africa, and you're speaking to us in South Africa, where we have that deep, painful history of apartheid, which was our form of discrimination and racism. Very much so. What more do we need to say for people to accept us, despite the color of our skin? It's a, listen, it's about recognition of ability. That's what it is. Um, when, when I was coming to South Africa, uh, I had ability that was recognized when I was on a ship uh, uh, and my qualifications and everything was recognized. But 
people look, didn't look at my qualifications when I came ashore in 61, 62. Mm. I was classified as cake coloured. I knew where I could go, where I couldn't go, only on the, the, the colour of my skin. Nothing to do with my ability. So opportunity is about recognising people's ability, developing that and then allowing them to flow. So that's what it's all about. We have, you know, South Africa is a wonderful, wonderful country. I love the country. There was just some of the people that I felt I couldn't get along with, if you understand. But, uh, <laughs> I understand you clearly, Bob. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for speaking to us in South Africa. Wonderful insight. We appreciate the time that you've given us there, Robert Perkins, just talking about what happened in the aftermath of England's defeat to Italy.